I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. A reminder to those who were planning on attending the prayer and care committee meeting, we're going to be postponing that for a later date. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, this is verses 1 to 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, by the work of your Spirit in our hearts, illumine our minds that we would receive your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning we come to a different section of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I thought I would do just a quick little review, a Bible study of sorts, walk through some of the things I've said that put it in context. In the beginning of Ecclesiastes, maybe you remember this, Solomon made four arguments that life is really not worth living. Remember, he said it's a chasing after the wind. He argued that life under the sun is really not worth living because he argued that it is monotonous. He argued that the vanity of wisdom and wealth and worldly pleasure make life not worth living. All those things give you no meaning. And he argued that for both the wise and the fool, death is inevitable. So why bother? And those four arguments that he made seem to have proven the point that he was trying to make, that all is vanity. But then you remember, beginning in chapter 2, verse 24, his viewpoint changes. He, he, remember, he brings God into the picture, and being the wise man that he is, he, he doesn't leave his previous arguments left aside, unchallenged. He now challenges them from this new perspective. And so, beginning in chapter 3 and extending to chapter 10, he, he reexamines those arguments that he made. Uh, the first argument, the monotony of life, he reexamined in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and he does that all the way through to ver- uh, chapter 5, verse 9. And, and he discovers in this process four factors that must be considered before you can say that life is monotonous, before you can say that life is meaningless. He said that you have to consider time, eternity, death, and suffering. At first, he saw something above man. Remember, now he brings God into the picture, a God who's in control of time and who balances life's experiences. And then he saw something within man that linked him to God, eternity in our hearts, as chapter 3, 9 to 14 said. And then he saw something ahead of man, the certainty of death and judgment, chapter 3, 15 to 22. And finally, he saw something around man, the problems and burdens of life. And that's where we're kind of picking up today. That goes all the way to chapter 5, verse 9. And so what Solomon does, and I mentioned this in a previous sermon, uh, uh, what he does is ask us, as Warren Wearsby put it, to look up at time, to look within, 
to eternity in our hearts, to look ahead to death and judgment, and to look around at suffering. And this morning, uh, all these factors come together and will show that life is not monotonous. And this morning, we're going to focus on the suffering. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, Solomon begins looking around. And when he do, what he does that, when he begins doing that, he sees the problems and the burdens of life. When he first began examining life, remember he was doing it philosophically. Um, it was detached from reality in a sense, kind of just stepping back. But now he's looking at it, and he went where people really lived, and he discovered that life was not that simple. You can't just sit in your ivory tower and figure it out. He saw life as it really was. In chapter 3, verse 6, we read, He saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. In chapter 3, verse 21, He saw that there is nothing better that man should rejoice in his work. And now, beginning in chapter 4, he saw something. He saw oppression. It says that he saw the tears of the oppressed. He saw people who were helpless and comfortless. And so that's the focus of the topic this morning, this issue of oppression. We began to see hints of it already in last week's study, the end of chapter 3, where he spoke of injustice. That's very similar. But we're going to single it out now, and we're going to focus on oppression. And we're going to do it under the following headings. It's simple. We're going to look at the meaning, and then the cause of it, and then the experience of it, and then the response, and then the answer. And so first, the meaning of oppression. He begins by stating, again, I saw all the oppressions. That word is uh, used in a variety of different ways. Solomon uses the most common word for oppression here. It's mentioned three times in verse 1, and it means to press upon, means to violate, means to defraud, to do violence, to gain deceitfully, to do wrong, to exhort. It often associated with physical and spiritual burdens, has to do with the violence of war or unjust social and political systems. It, it, what it does is it kind of signifies the oppressors enriching themselves by violating a neighbor's property rights, for example. It's the imagery of one of bondage and rights taken away. And the original readers of this would have known something about this. They understood oppression the classic example of oppression is found in the Bible with the Hebrew slavery in Egypt. This is what we read there. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are becoming too mighty and too big. We've got to deal shrewdly with them because if they grow, they'll join our enemies and they'll fight against us. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens." But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And if that wasn't enough... The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, 
you shall kill him. That's the life that they had experienced it. And so they were familiar with oppression, with bondage. They understood the, having their rights taken away. And that is the meaning of oppression. And such oppression is not limited, obviously, to the nation of Israel. It's alive and well. We know of it. Ask the black man at the time of slavery. Ask the Jew at the time of the Holocaust. Ask those fleeing Ukraine today. Ask those in other countries who are persecuted for their belief in Christ. They have their rights taken away. We know that there is genocide in the world. There's terrorism. There's sex trafficking. There's street children. And it doesn't even need to be those extreme cases. Uh, oppression is manifested its day when the poor are mistreated, or a or, or wife is abused, or an employee is cheated by his or her employer. Those are forms of oppression. There's oppressive governments in our world, um, uh, oppressive businesses, and people who simply just take advantage of others. So oppression is oppression is live, is alive and well. And that leads to the second point, which is the cause. We have the meaning. What about the cause? And it's simple. It's the power of the oppressor. Look at verse 10. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. Uh, this word power has to do with the ability to, to produce, be it, be it sexually or with respect to the earth's fertility and growth. It can refer to sheer physical strength or to the ability to cope uh, with various situations. When it's applied to God, this word, it describes his ability to create and to deliver his people. God's power is what? God's power is his absolute freedom to act in history and to create history. And so the power in the hands of the oppressor in, Ecclesi uh, in Ecclesiastes 4 is more than their acts of violence, that's true, towards the poor. It's this unrestrained freedom they have to do as they wish. Phil Riken says the oppressors have all the advantages. The power is all on their side, leaving their victims with nothing but tears. And that leads to our third point, the experience of the oppressed. Look at verse 1 again. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And so the experience of, of being on the wrong side of this oppressive power, the experience is one of tears. It's, it, it's one of hopelessness. They feel helpless. They feel vulnerable. Why? Because they have no one to protect them from the abuse of their oppressors. They have nowhere to turn, no one to take up their plight, no advocate, no power to do anything. They have no one even to comfort them. And that's stated twice for emphasis. Now, I mentioned uh, Dr. Riken. Uh, he shares in his commentary a story a, a true life story of a girl named Lena uh, that illustrates this. It kind of paints a picture of the experience of those who are oppressed by their oppressors. In this case, Lena's oppressors were her family and her neighbors. Lena is a 19-year-old. She, she is an Egyptian girl who was raised in a devout Muslim home. 
she had always been taught to despise Christianity, and uh, one day a friend from school invited her to listen to a radio program in which the, the gospel was being shared, and, and she heard it and began to wonder if everything she was taught about Jesus wasn't true, and uh, whether He is actually God and our Savior, and she got a Bible and read the Bible, and she came to the clear conviction that Jesus is our Savior. Well, sadly, Lena accepted Jesus as her Savior. She was attacked by her own family. Her father beat her. Her mother would not allow her to sit with the family at meals. Eventually, they they despised her so much, they they said that she was as good as dead to them. But even after they threw her out of her home, they continued to persecute her. She was kidnapped. She was beaten until she was broken and unconscious. She had no one under the sun to dry her tears of pain and anguish. She had no one to comfort her, no one to take up her cause and be her advocate under the sun. She was powerless. This, beloved, is the experience of the oppressed. It's the kind of oppression that we often see under the sun, maybe not as ruthless, but the anguish is still the same. this oppression. It it was Job's experience. Uh, Job is talking about his uh, friends, and he says, I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are you all. Uh, Nation of Israel experienced this. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies, says Lamentations chapter 1. This psalmist cries out, look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul, Psalm 142.4. And ultimately, it was the experience of our Lord and Savior while on earth. He was hated in spite of his perfect sinlessness, or as one writer said, because of his perfect sinlessness. Jesus said, they hated me without reason, John 15. He came into this world and experienced oppression. Jesus knew what it was like to have his heart broken. He he knew what it was like to be helpless, to have no one to comfort him. Even God, God his Father, seemed distant. Remember when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the world we live in. We live in an oppressively sinful world, and the cost of that oppression is great. There's mental anguish. There's emotional, there's spiritual, and sometimes, as we just saw with Jesus or, or, or Lena that we talked about in that story, physical oppression. And so faced with the sight of such oppression, what is to be our response? And that leads to the response. As I said, Solomon's response to oppression is not detached this time. It's not philosophical. He's looking. He's seeing it. He's the king. He can do nothing about it. And he responds with these deep emotions, with lamentation and and with indignation. One writer explains that. I think this is good. He says that Solomon's response was the same holy response that we see in the life of Jesus Christ. 
On the one hand, he responds to the oppression that he sees with, with anguish, with lamentation, just like the tears of Jesus that he shed for the harassed and helpless people of Israel, as Matthew 9 tells us. It. On the other hand, though, he responds to his oppressors with indignation, with anger, like the angry words of Jesus he had for the money changers at the temple, Luke 19. But what Solomon felt the most was simple frustration that he could not bring to an end this oppression. He is the king and he could not do it. The wickedness of no one coming forward and and assisting oppressed people crying for help, it's devastating for Solomon. And he's seeing it now. So devastating to him, it is so devastating that he claims, then he concludes that it was better to be dead than to be alive and oppressed. In fact, it was just better not to be born at all. Look at verse 2 and 3. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, those words that he just, after looking out and seeing us express, are, are also picked up kind of poetically by Job. We read that Job said, to let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. He's describing his own life. Let that day be darkness, the day I was born. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let not joyful cries enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? That's how Job views his life. Job's life was nothing short of tragic. He lost everything, and he comes to the conclusion after facing the death and the disease and and the loss of everything that he would have just been better off not being born. And that's Solomon's take as he looks out on those who are suffering oppression. Death is better than life, and never being born is better than both. And if we think that he's exaggerating, you know, he's being poetic. Job's just being poetic. They're just exaggerating to make the point. The problem is that we probably haven't been willing personally to identify with the plight of people that have been truly oppressed. We have not walked in their shoes. We have not allowed ourselves to hear their cries and, and, and feel their pain. And that's understandable. We, who, who wants to endure that? Who wants to endure and see what Job saw or, or experienced? Or who wants to see what, what Solomon saw? We don't know what it's like to be completely and utterly helpless. To have nowhere to turn. Nowhere. To have no one, not a single person to comfort us. 
We, we, we see the starving children on TV and we just kind of turn the channel. We, we skip the articles about all the sex trafficking during the Super Bowl so we can enjoy the Super Bowl. Or we, we bury our head in the sand when, when someone mentions the genocide that we see around the world. And see, the point I'm making here is that we really shouldn't be sparing ourselves of these realities. We must be willing to identify with the poor and with the needy, with the oppressed. Hebrews 13 says we must remember those in prison as if we were their fellow prisoners. And believe me, make no mistake about it, a person who is oppressed feels like they are in a prison, even if they're not in one literally. And so Solomon is not being over the top, especially when you consider he is looking at this oppression under the sun. As long as his view is viewed under the sun, if that is all there is, then there really is no better solution. See, here's the painful reality. If you identify with the oppressed, if you see their plight or if you experience yourself from only a secular point of view, Without God in the picture, you will be driven to the conclusion that you're better off not to be born. What else could there be? Is this not what drives people to consider suicide? Why they don't don't want to live with all this hopelessness and there is nowhere to turn. And so Solomon's response is appropriate. It's actually expected, but it's not the solution. It's not the answer. Surely we should lament over these things as we see the helplessness and hopelessness of people. Surely we should be angry at the oppression we see. Surely we should try to bring comfort when we can. But in the end, it's just not enough. We need something more. We actually see it and we long for something more. And that leads to our final point, the answer to oppression. We looked at the meaninglessness, uh, the meaning, excuse me, of oppression, the terrible experience of oppression, those who perpetrate oppression, and the anger and anguish we feel over oppression. But what is the answer to it? Well, part of the answer is actually is found in our response. We all individually and corporately as a church, however you want to put it, we should identify with and seek to comfort those who are oppressed. So our response is part of the answer. Scripture is clear. We should seek to show mercy to the oppressed, visiting those in prison. I read that earlier. Proverbs 14 says this, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And so we're to be sure to care for and be the advocates of the oppressed. This is why we prayed and we wanted to support those who are suffering in Ukraine. And I'm sure, and and even in our mission work that we're going to be doing um, in India, it's to help those. Uh, But not only Christians, that's what we should do as individuals, people generally, but Christians especially, but the government has a responsibility as well to the oppressed. Rulers have a special obligation to stop oppression. We see that in the Scripture. Jeremiah exhorted the king, deliver from the hand of the oppressor he who has been robbed. Jeremiah 21. In fact, the the leaders of Israel were often rebuked um, for not caring uh, for the widows or orphans or aliens. This is what Ezekiel says. Thus says the Lord God, enough, O princes of Israel. 
put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. And so you see it in the Bible. Solomon himself prays about it. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness as you, and, and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend, speaking of the, the king, the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. And so rulers, including our own, by the way, our government has a responsibility, a God-ordained responsibility to take up the cause of the oppressed. And so we should be praying that they would do that. And it's important. But as important as governments are and individual Christians are to care for and speak for the oppressed, ultimately we know that isn't the final answer. The answer has to come from a higher power, obviously above the sun, it must come from God. And see, here's the thing. When you look at Scripture, it's clear that God has chosen sides on these matters. He stands with the oppressed. And he stands with the uh, oppressed in all his power. And so the only answer to oppression ultimately is Jesus. In fact, Jesus, in Luke 4, he's quoting from Isaiah, but he's announcing his mission here on earth. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's the liberator of the oppressed. He's the one who rules with God's justice and righteousness. He's the one who ultimately defends the cause of the poor and the needy. He gives deliverance to the children of the needy. He crushes the oppressor. He is the one, according to John 14, who prays to the Father to send us an advocate, a helper, a comforter like himself who will be with us in our oppression and, and, and be with us forever, John 14, 6. Beloved, do you see it? Jesus is our helper. Jesus is our advocate. He is our comforter. Jesus is the one who takes up our cause. Think about it. He identified with our oppression by becoming a man. He died for us, crushing the, the great oppressor, Satan. He sends to us his comfort in the person of the Holy Spirit. And someday, King Jesus will return to take us home to be with him forever, John 14, 3. And when he does, what will happen? He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more oppression. For the old order of things has passed away, says Revelation 21.4. That is the hope and that is the comfort of every believer, even every oppressed believer. Jesus is the hope for those in the midst of oppression. You know, earlier, I'll close with this. I mentioned the story that Dr. Riken brought up in his book about Lena. Well, he goes on to tell more about that story. When Lena was disowned by her family and she was walking the streets, basically, what kept her from despair 
was her faith in the resurrection power of God in life after death with Jesus. She said this, I'm in real danger, but I trust God because he is alive. My comfort is that only a short time I'll be spending here on earth, but there will be a long time that I'll spend with him. We know there will come a time when there will be no more sorrow or suffering. That is our hope in the Lord Jesus. In the midst of all the oppression, the beatings, the hopelessness, the abandonment, she can look to a resurrected Lord. He is alive. And what do we learn about our risen Lord in John chapter 8? That the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so do you see, beloved, the greatest thing you can do for yourself, preaching to yourself, but for the oppressed, the ultimate answer is not just identify with them. It's not to only seek to bring them comfort. It's not only to be their advocate. It's not to speak up for them when they need someone to speak up for them. It needs to, it must include you speaking to them. Speaking to them what? The words of life, the words of freedom. Telling them as the psalmist proclaims, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in time of trouble, Psalm 9.9. Telling them uh, in the midst of their oppression, doing everything you can to help them literally and physically and emotionally and mentally and, and socially. But in the midst of that, telling them, Jesus said this word that could be theirs, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a promise in the midst of the oppression. Here's another one. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you, Jesus promises. That's the greatest gift you can offer them. It's not to the neglect of the other things you can do, by the way. I, I, I don't want to get off track. I was ending, but I can remember being in college, the first time at Bible college, and we ordered pizza, and my roommate or somebody's room in the dorm said, we don't have to give them a tip, just give them a track. And I thought, you know, I didn't know any better. I'd save a buck. But um, I thought, that just seems rude, especially because I used to deliver pizza before I became a Christian. <laughs> and, and, See, it's not one or the other. Tell them about Jesus or help them. It's help them and tell them about Jesus. That is the point. The greatest gift, though, that you can give them, especially a person who's spiritually oppressed, as all us sinners are, is the gift of life and freedom in Jesus Christ. And so what we need to do is we need to identify and cry out to Christ If you're in oppression or you feel oppressed, to cry out to Christ for comfort. And if you see it and you've identified with it, to cry out for the oppressed. And we also then need to look down knowing that Jesus will answer, that he will be concerned, that he will hear our prayers, and he will bring comfort in his perfect timing. Let's pray. Our great God and our heavenly Father, we thank you. We pray, Father, you would help us by your spirit to feel, to sense, to understand, to know the oppression, even as your son knew it, that we would identify 
with the oppressed, that we'd be their advocates, surely, that we'd speak up for them, but that we would also speak to them the words of life. In Jesus' name, amen.